Well, let's begin this morning by reading our text. We are in Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 22 to 33 this morning. All right, Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is one of the most remarkable miracles that our Lord did. He walked on water. And he didn't merely walk on water, he walked on water in a fierce storm. And he didn't merely walk on water in a fierce storm, he walked on the Sea of Galilee in a fierce storm, which was a a fierce sea. And not only that, he also empowered Peter to walk on the water as well. And so the Lord Jesus shines in this passage as more than a man. Men don't walk on storms. Men men don't stop storms the instant they get into a boat. And the disciples here begin to recognize Jesus for who he is. In verse 33, those in the boat worshipped him. And this this text is intended to have the same effect on us. It should move us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We should see what he does here and recognize him as the son of God who is worthy of our praise, who is worthy of our adoration and our worship. And we should also learn something here from Peter. Matthew is the only gospel that includes this brief walk on the water that Peter has. And I think the intent here is that this is intended as a lesson for future disciples And so it would seem that there's a lesson for us here about faith. Peter said to, or or Jesus said to Peter, verse 31 again, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so there's a lesson here for us about faith and discipleship. And we'll see in this text who Jesus is and how we can come to him in faith. We'll see who he is and we'll see how to trust him for who he is in the midst of our own trials and difficulties in this world. Peter walked on water, but not for very long. 
but he did walk on water. He trusted Jesus and the Lord upheld him. And we need the same kind of trust. We're not going to walk on water. That's not something that the Lord has commanded us to do, but he has commanded us to do other things by his mighty power. And we need to learn not to doubt. We need to learn not to be afraid or to put it positively, we need to learn how to trust him and how to depend on him in all of the situations of our lives. And so there's some great lessons here for us. And I want to get right into it here this morning. We're going to frame this, uh, this message around the, the, around the Lord Jesus. In, in the third section, we see that, that Peter's going to be the one that walks on the water, but it's, it's really not about Peter. And, and really his walk on the water is just ever so briefly. This, this text is, is clear that it's not Peter who's doing this on his own authority. Jesus is the one who enabled and empowered and allowed Peter to do this. And so we're going to focus everything around the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the one who saved Peter when he failed. And so what we're going to see then is four wonderful demonstrations of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Again, four wonderful demonstrations of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see, first of all, the service and the prayer of Jesus in verses 22 and 23. Jesus serves the disciples. He serves the crowd. And then he prays. Secondly, we'll see the power of Jesus in verses 24 to 27. Then we'll see the invitation of Jesus in verses 28 to 31. And that's where we're going to learn a lesson about faith from Peter and from the Lord. And then fourthly, we're going to see the worthiness of Jesus in verses 32 and 33. Again, they worshiped him in the boat, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And each of these is going to show us they're, they're a, a wonderful demonstration of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And what we see in these verses should move us to worship. His greatness on display should bring forth praise from our hearts as we recognize him for who he is. And so let's go number one. First of all, let's look at the service and the prayer of Jesus in verses 22 and 23, the service and prayer of Jesus. Now we need to remember here where we were last week. Jesus had heard that John the Baptist was executed. According to Mark, at the same time, the disciples had just returned from their missionary trip. And Jesus and his disciples are then withdrew to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They, they withdrew by boat. So they went from the west side to the east side in order to get some rest. Mark 6.31 says, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. But when they got to the other side of the lake to get that rest, the crowd had already beat them to the other side. The crowd had run and ran around the lake, around the north side of the lake, and they had arrived in the place where Jesus and his disciples landed by boat. And Jesus had compassion on the crowd and he healed their sick. That's Matthew 14 and verse 14. And then in the evening, verse 15, Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men, plus an unnumbered amount of women and children. 
And he had the weary disciples kind of help him in that ministry. He, he had them pass out the food so that they were involved in the miracle and they served the crowd by Jesus' power. Now, we didn't think much about this last week, but, but let's do so now. Jesus had 12 disciples. And he called them apostles. Now, there could have been others as well, but Matthew doesn't talk so much about them. And so it seems like there was the 12 who were with Jesus at that time. And after the feeding of the 5,000, remember they picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. That was verse 20. And so we had 12 baskets and 12 disciples. Now, as we think about this, have, have you ever served at a banquet. Have you ever just think about it if, if you've ever served at a banquet. Now granted this meal only had bread and fish, but serving 15 to 25,000 people, that's going to be a big job. That's going to be a, a, a lot of work. You know, we we do our little Christmas banquet here. What do we have around 200 people at that thing? Now, granted we have like other foods besides bread and fish, and so there's a lot more service going on, but, but we even hire caterers, and we have 12 people to serve 200. We're talking 12 disciples serving 15 to 25,000 people. That's a, that's a big day by any estimate. And so we need to recognize that this would have been a long day for Jesus. It would have been a long day for his disciples, especially when they already came to this desolate place to get some rest. And so verse 15 again, it was evening. Uh, the d- disciples said before the meal, the, the day is now over, which is literally the hour has already passed, perhaps meaning the hour in which uh, it was the, the evening meal. Maybe that hour had already passed. It was getting late. And, uh, and the feeding of the 5,000, that when that would have been done, it would have been even later than that. And so everybody would have been likely tired, maybe maybe not ready for bed, tired, but everyone would have been physically tired after that day. They rode across the lake, now they're feeding these all these people. And it's in this setting that we see the Lord Jesus really at his best. Everyone's tired. You know, isn't it when we're tired after a long day, when, when we, we so often our sinful and our selfish side kind of shows itself. That's when, that's when we are, are, sometimes we say that's when we really are ourselves. When the guard is down and we're tired and, and it's at that kind of a time when, when most of us would start to think that maybe we deserve some rest. Or maybe we would have had thoughts about our own importance and that would have begun to overshadow thoughts of how we could serve others. But that's not at all what the Lord Jesus did in this occasion. He didn't think about himself. In fact, he sent the disciples away while he continued to work and dismiss the crowd. And so look at verse 22. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray When evening came, he was there alone. And so Jesus sends the disciples away while he himself is going to dismiss the crowds. He's going to continue to serve the crowds, but he's going to give the disciples a little bit of a break. Now there's two things here that show us that that Jesus did this with some vigor. The text says that he did this immediately, verse 22, immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat right away, immediately after the crowd ate. 
And second, it says there that he made them get into the boat. And made there is a strong verb. It, it means to compel someone to do something. To, to compel someone or to strongly urge. Even sometimes that word is used to force somebody to do something. Now Matthew doesn't explain this at all. But if we went to the parallel passage in John, just, just listen to John. This is John 6, 13 to 15. It says, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so Jesus made his disciples get away from this potentially negative influence. His plan was not at all to be made king by an excited mob. And so it seems like he, kind of recognizing this, perceiving that what's about to happen, he immediately made the disciples go away. He sent them away and, and they were to go to the other side. Now there's, there's a whole thing here. If you kind of look at all the gospels and you, you want to harmonize the details of the gospels, we got, kind of got to do a little bit of work here. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> now I don't always take the time for these little things, but you know, we're, we're focused on Matthew. We're preaching Matthew and, um, <clears throat> Our, our focus is on what Matthew tells us and what Matthew focuses on, but we're going to do a little bit here this morning. It, it seems that, that what's happening is that, that Jesus must have told the disciples to go to Bethsaida. Now, I, I recognize you might not just know where Bethsaida is, but if you've got the Sea of Galilee there on the east side, just a little bit north from there on the north side of the lake, that's Bethsaida. And so Jesus told the disciples to go to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And he must have told them, he must have given them some further instruction that they were to go to the other side. Maybe they were going to go together, but if he didn't come to them, he must have told them at a certain time, you guys go ahead without me across the lake. And so if you, and maybe we should turn there, just go over to to the book of Mark and look at chapter 6. So look at Mark 6:44. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now again, Bethsaida is not the other side. And so I, I think the idea is probably that the disciples, they were going to go to Bethsaida while Jesus dismissed the crowd. But if it took too long, they were going to go to the other side without him. And I think that's the best way to kind of solve what's happening there. And then Jesus personally dismissed or sent the crowd away. And again, if you think about this, this is a large crowd of people to interact with. And so I, I kind of picture Jesus there by himself with fifteen to 20,000 people waiting in line to talk to him and him kind of talking to each one of them as they kind of go and and kind of decide that it's time to pack it in for the night and maybe make their way home. This would have, again, been an exhausting time of ministry. 
A lot of ministry happens in, in these moments of interaction and dismissing a crowd. And, and especially when we think of it, that it was the Lord Jesus who, who we're talking about here, who is doing this ministry. And after all of that, after Jesus finally now has an opportunity, he's dismissed the crowd and he has an opportunity to be alone. Although he's not really alone, he spends time now with his father in prayer. And so he goes up the mountain to, to be by himself in order to pray. Now, we don't know exactly what he prayed about. We don't know at all what he prayed about. Matthew doesn't say what he prayed. But we can imagine what would have been the, on the Lord's mind. He was recently rejected by the cities of Galilee. He was rejected by his own hometown of Nazareth. The scribes and the Pharisees said that he operated by the power of Satan. They had only maybe days before accused him of this. Herod was was thinking about Jesus and word about that came to Jesus. Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. And perhaps even there would be some some fear or some thought that that Herod would try to kill John the Baptist again. In other words, that Herod would try to kill the Lord Jesus. The crowds are still following him and they, they won't leave him alone and they want to make him king on their own terms. All of these things are going on in the life of our Lord and at that moment and I think even that's enough to pray about. But if you add to that the, the fact that he has compassion for the crowd, that he has some feeling of care and concern for the crowd, I think that adds even more. Not to mention the disciples. They have a long ways to go before they're going to be ready for their mission. And so there's a lot for our Lord to pray about. There'd be a lot on his mind at that moment. Now, Jesus had taught his disciples not to pray in such a way that others would see it. Remember the, the hypocrites in Matthew chapter 6? They're the ones that loved the recognition and, and uh, they loved that recognition that they got when they would pray on the street corners or, or pray in the synagogue. And so Jesus, unlike them, he goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. He goes up to be alone for this time of prayer. Again, look at verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. It says there, when evening came. Now we had already seen it was already evening in verse 15 that was before dinner before supper same word evening there as we see in verse 23 and so it was evening before and now evening has come again the word evening here refers to any time between late afternoon until about dark and so here in this second use of the word evening it likely means that it's it's now late evening it's after 6 p.m sometime And so Jesus was alone spending time with his father in prayer, probably praying about everything that was happening in his life, everything that was happening in his ministry, but also just enjoying that sweet fellowship with the father. And again, we don't know what he prayed, but we do know that he spent a good deal of time with his father in prayer. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. <clears throat> so the disciples had sent, sent, set off without him, and Jesus came to them in the fourth watch of the night. 
Now, the Romans had four watches of the night. The first watch was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Second watch was 9 p.m. till 12 a.m. or midnight. Third watch was midnight till 3 a.m. Fourth watch is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so Jesus came to the disciples on the sea sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And so it's likely that, that he prayed from something like from about 9 p.m. until 3 in the morning. Or maybe if we give him an hour, maybe it's an hour to hike up the mountain and an hour to hike back down. He prays then from 10 p.m. until 2 a.m. And so I'd guess that the very minimum time that the Lord spent in prayer here is, is four hours. And he prayed for from either from four hours minimum to up to about eight hours in prayer. It could have even been more. We're not exactly sure. But he spent a good deal of time just fellowshipping with his father in prayer. Now we're, we'll see later that, that we're to trust Jesus, that, that we're to have faith. We're not to doubt as we serve the Lord. We're to, we're to serve Him in dependence on Him. And to do that, we need to pray. You know, if you think about it, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? If Jesus took the issues of his life to his Father, it gives us an example to follow him. You see, prayer and trust go hand in hand. We're going to talk about trust in a minute, but prayer and trust go hand in hand. Power and trust, power and prayer go hand in hand. Just as the opposite, self-dependence and lack of trusting God, that belongs to prayerlessness. And so in Jesus, we see a wonderful example of service and prayer. The Lord served his disciples, he served the crowd, and he spent time in prayer. He didn't neglect one or the other. He served and he prayed. And prayer for our Lord, at least on this occasion, it was more important to him even than sleep. See, Jesus would rather pray than sleep, at least on this occasion. And so that's a great example for us about the importance of prayer in our lives. But we need to keep moving here. And so let's go on to the second wonderful demonstration of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And that is number two. Let's see the power of Jesus. Let's look at the power of the Lord Jesus Christ right now in verses 24 to 27. Now, the scene for this power is set up in verse 24. At some point after the meal, the disciples, they begin to head to the other side. And so they leave Bethsaida and now they're now crossing towards the area of Capernaum. And so they're rowing from the east side of the lake to the west side of the lake. We'll see in verse 34 that they arrive at Gennesaret, which is uh, a little south of Capernaum, Gennesaret. And they were already a long way from the land. And literally there, it's many stadia. A stadia was about an eighth of a mile. John 6.19 tells us that they were 25 to 30 stadia, or that would be about three to four miles from the land. And so they're about somewhere about halfway across the lake, or maybe a little more than halfway across the lake at this point. And by the fourth watch of the night, we would have really expected them to be across the lake. But the wind was against them, and so they seemed to be fighting the wind. Again, we don't know exactly when they set off, but they would have set off 
not, not, I doubt that they would set off in the middle of the night. And so they've, they've set off and they're trying to make it across and this storm has come and the wind is against them and they're rowing as hard as they can, but they're really not making very much progress across the lake. Now the Sea of Galilee is notorious for its fierce storms, which can, can really come very, very quickly. There's a, a great temperature difference between the cool air up in the, up in the hills and the warm air on the water, and that difference just kind of makes a storm, can just kind of whip up in a moment. We've already seen a one storm like that in Matthew chapter 8, and we'll look at some of those verses uh, actually in a moment, so you could already turn there if you wanted, Matthew chapter 8. One commentator in our passage about this passage that we're looking at, he said that, he, or he spoke about eight-foot waves. But I was, I, I looked it up a little bit, but I was unable to confirm how big a storm could get on that lake. But apparently, because the lake is fairly shallow, the, the, the deepest part is 141 feet. Because of that, the waves could, could get whipped up very, very quickly by the wind. Apparently, the deeper the lake, the, the more stability there is when uh, wind is blowing on it. And so we could expect some huge waves to come, even though that's really just a, a small lake. But look at Matthew 8 and verse 24. This is the previous storm on the Sea of Galilee. It says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so here Jesus calmed the storm, a great storm, and he brought about a great calm by rebuking the winds and the sea. Now for the waves in this verse to swamp the boat, I I think they'd likely need to be about four feet high or over four feet high in order to be kind of getting over one of the average boats of that day that could carry 12 men or more. Now in our text, Jesus doesn't stop the storm. He just simply walks on the water in the midst of the storm. Now it doesn't say a great storm, but it's, it's a storm and they're not able to row across it. Verse 24, again in our text, Matthew 14, 24, but the boat was by this time a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. That's literally tortured by the waves. A very vivid word there. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now imagine how it would be to walk on the waves on a stormy lake. You know, when I used to picture this, I'd always picture a smooth lake, a calm lake. But here we go, Jesus is walking on the waves of a stormy lake. You know, I kind of picture, did, did he like hop from like, lake, you know, is he jumping from wave to wave or what, how was he doing that? Did, he, did his feet get wet? I, have, I Again, I have so many questions about was there splashing going on or was it just solid for him or I, we don't know. Matthew just doesn't get into the details of these kinds of things. But to get where the disciples were, that was a, again, a three to four mile walk on this, on the lake. And so he walks three or four miles on the lake to the, to the perhaps middle of the lake. Now by this time, it could be that it was already getting to be morning. It's the fourth watch, three to six a.m. 
I'm not sure when sunrise is in the, in the Sea of Galilee, but could be that the light was already shining. Or it could be that, that Jesus miraculously finds them on the sea in the, in the dark. We don't know. But either way, he came to them walking on the sea. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. And so the disciples were terrified, and, and honestly, as I've been thinking about this, I have a lot of sympathy for them here. You know, it, it was, like we might say, it was the middle of the night. They must have been tired, so tired, rowing against the wind, and it's not like Jesus said, okay, guys, if, if I don't get to you by such and such a time, I'm just going to come walking on the water, and... Uh, and so he didn't say that. But even if he did say that, you know, I don't know about you, but if someone sneaks up on me in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm terrified. At least, at least for a brief moment, I'm, I'm terrified. And, but if they come to me walking on the water in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm freaking out. And, and so are the disciples. I would, I could imagine some of you are maybe a little bit jumpy that way as well. And so he, he, he comes up to them in the middle of the night and they, they see him and they're terrified, even if only for a moment. And their first thought was, it's a ghost. A, a phantasma is the Greek word, a phantom, an apparition. A, it's, it's a ghost. Now, they're not thinking this through rationally. This isn't like the, the best thought out expression of their theology. They're just, they're just, again, they're just freaking out and, and you or I might do the same kind of thing and just kind of react. What is this? It's a, it's a ghost and, ah, you know, and then they cried out. And that's a, that's a very strong word. They cried out in fear. It's a shriek. It's a scream. The last time we saw this word in Matthew is when the two blind men in Matthew 9.27, they, they followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Before that, the word was used in Matthew 8.28 of two demon-possessed men. Remember these two demon-possessed men? This is Matthew 8.28. They met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, same word, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And so this word is a, a, a shriek, a scream. They're, they're crying out in fear. Now as we think about this and, and the demons crying out, I, I want you to just, just to remember what the demon said here. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And so the demons note, uh, or the demons say that Jesus is Son of God. And we're going to see that again in our text in verse 33. But the disciples, they cry out then like scared demons or like desperate blind men. They're afraid, but Jesus settles their fears in verse 27. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And so Jesus says, Take heart or take courage. He said this in Matthew 9 verse 2 to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He said that same word in Matthew 9.22, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well, and instantly the woman was made well. And so this is a, an encouraging word from the Lord. Immediately the Lord tries to settle their fears with an encouraging word. And then he says, it is I. Take heart, 
it is I. And, and it's natural in that setting for, for someone to say it is I. It, it, it's, it's very natural. Just, it, you know, it's me. That's my, maybe what we would say. But literally here, it's, this is I am. And this is a, a Greek that I, I want you to know. It's the, the Greek is ego a me. Ego a me. And you, you might recognize we even sang about it this morning. This is I am. Jesus said, literally just says, I am. And, and you might recognize those I am statements from the seven I am statements in John's gospel, which are all ego a me. Remember, Jesus says, I am, I am he, I am the door, I am the vine. And, and there's seven of those throughout the book of John. And in hindsight, at least, if, if not even already, we can see that Jesus claims to be Yahweh, that he is the great I am. And of course, this comes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God says to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. Moses is going, who do I tell sent me? And God says, I am who I am. And he said, the Lord said, say to this people of, say to this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, which is very closely related to I am in the Hebrew language, say, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so Jesus here says, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. But what we really need to see here is the power of the Lord Jesus. Twice it says that he was walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Now, again, people don't walk on water. I know, I know you know that. And Peter's going to remind us that in a moment, that, that it's just not natural for people to walk on water. Nobody walks on water. Nobody walks on water except who? Well, I want you to turn back to the book of Job. So let's, let's go find the book of Job here. Job chapter 9. Job 9, look at, look at verse 2. Job is, is speaking about God here in verse 2, about partway through verse 2. But how can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. And then Job begins to describe God in various ways. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Verse 5, he who removes mountains. Verse 6, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Verse 7, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens. And then Job says, and trampled the waves of the sea. And that word trampled there is literally, he, he walks upon the waves of the sea. And this is something that God does according to Job. And then if you even go over to Job chapter 38 and look at verse 16, he says it again here, this time the Lord is speaking. Yahweh himself is speaking to Job and he has some questions for Job. And, and one of them in verse 16 is, 
Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Again, implying they're walking on water. Isaiah 43 also says, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. And so the Lord, Yahweh, He's the one who walks upon the water. And, and what we see now in our text is that the, the Lord is walking in human flesh. God the Son is walking on the waves of the water. Yahweh is treading on the waves of the sea. And so this shows us then the wonderful power of our Lord Jesus. He can walk on the sea. He can do what God alone can do. And then we see now he's going to invite Peter to do the same, to share with him in the same. This is called number three, the invitation of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus in verses 28 to 31. And what we see here is, is in some ways even more amazing than, than what we've seen up to this point. Jesus allows Peter to walk on the water too. And from this point forward, Peter comes to the forefront of the disciples in this gospel, and, and really we could say in all the gospels. From here on, his name in the Greek is always the Peter. He's always the Peter. Previously, he was Peter. Now he's the Peter. Now it's, it's normal in Greek for um, a, a name to take an article. So it, it, it's normal for, for it to be the Jesus or the Peter. But from this point on, except for on two occasions out of four in chapter 16, it's always the Peter. And Peter's always kind of the one to speak for the disciples. He's always the first. He's always kind of leading the way. And this is, if we want to think about it this way, this is Peter's stepping out of the boat moment. He's going to be the leader now among the twelve from this point on. And we should note here a couple things about Peter. We should see his devotion here, but also kind of his, his brass way. He just kind of, he just kind of sets himself up and he just kind of, he just, he's just going for it no matter what. And so he's, he's devoted for the, to the Lord, but he's also just a little bit hasty or something, a little bit brass. And he says to the Lord, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, this is verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And it, it's really quite a bold request. At, at this point, Peter seems to have learned that that this is how it works, that whatever Jesus is doing, I'm supposed to do as well. And so he's he's learned that he's supposed to imitate the Lord and do whatever the Lord did. And, and you might remember earlier in chapter 10 that the Lord gave his disciples, chapter 1, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so Jesus gave his disciples authority to do what he had been doing. And so Peter says, hey, let's, let's do it again, Lord. Command me. Tell me to, to come out on the water to you. Now, when Peter says that, he already believes that it's Jesus. He, he knows that it's Jesus. The, the Greek text makes that really clear. He, he's, he's not seeking proof here. He believes. And so now he asks, command me. And Jesus says in verse 29, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Peter walked on the water and he, he walked all the way to Jesus. Now we don't know how far that was, but, but he did a, a bit. He walked on the water and he came to Jesus. Jesus said, come and, and Peter came and so far so good. 
This is great. This is awesome. It must have been super exciting for Peter and for the, the disciples to be watching this. But then right away, verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter saw the wind, which, which really stands for the storm, and he, he looked at what was happening. Some manuscripts add that it was a strong wind. Now, we already know that it was a strong wind. Verse 24, the, 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 the boat was beaten by the waves, literally tortured by the waves. It was a significant storm. And Peter saw what was happening, and, and he became afraid. He was standing on the water right next to Jesus, and, and he was afraid, and he began to sink. We don't know how far he sank. We don't know. I wish I could have saw. Did he, did he go right under or what happened there exactly? Jesus grabs him pretty quick, but, but he began to sink right where Jesus was standing. And this shows, by the way, just to kind of deal with some of these liberal scholars or whatever, that Jesus wasn't standing on some kind of sandbar or something ridiculous like that. He, right where Jesus was standing, Peter sank. Now, Peter still believes he, he began to sink and he immediately cries out, same word as we saw before, cries out, uh, a terrible cry, a terrified cry. He says, Lord, save me. And the Lord immediately grabbed him. Immediately the Lord grabbed him and, and it seems hauled him back up on top of the water. Now, it's interesting to me that it, that it happened this way. The, the Lord could have kept Peter up, I think, but despite his fear. You know, I, I, I can't think that we're meant to imagine that all of this happened because Peter had such great faith and that's what empowered him to walk on the water. It's really the Lord who is doing this. And in the midst of Peter's doubt, the Lord grabs him. And, and again, it seems like they get back up on top of the water and they walk to the boat. Although Matthew isn't uh, exactly clear on that. He doesn't exactly say how that happens. But the Lord let Peter sink. And, and I think he d- does this as an object lesson for faith because he says in verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus wanted Peter to learn something about faith. And the invitation, when the Lord says, come, it it really opened the way for this lesson. And Peter trusted the Lord initially. And initially he had faith, but then he doubted. And he looked at the things that are seen. He looked at the wind and the waves and the storm and and the danger and, and the situation in which he was in. And he got afraid and he became afraid because he lost sight of the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus has used this saying, oh, you of little faith, many times already in the gospel and, and many more to come. Look back at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30. This is about disciples who worry about the things of the world. Matthew six thirty and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus used this saying again in in the previous storm in the Sea of Galilee, Matthew 8 and verse 25, when they, they went and woke Him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You see, fair, uh, fair. Faith and fear, faith and fear, fear and faith are opposites. Anxiety and trust, those don't go together. And we'll see this again in chapter 16. Verse 8, the disciples are, are talking. Go ahead and, and turn over there. This, this you of little faith, Matthew 16 and verse 8. Actually, look, look up at verse 7. When they began, they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst, among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? And so they're discussing, they're worried, they're concerned about their lack of bread, and uh, Jesus rebukes them, O you of little faith. Little faith doesn't understand or perceive God's promise. Little faith doesn't understand or perceive what God is able to do. And so little faith is anxious or afraid about a situation when it should be looking to and leaning on God. And so instead of looking at God and looking at the Lord and His power and His care for us and His promises, little faith is is looking at the situation and anxious and worried and afraid about what's happening. And so Peter was already walking on the water. Why? Why doubt? That's what the Lord asked him. Why did you doubt? And of course, there's really no answer to that. Why did you doubt? Jesus had commanded him to come and and Peter should have continued to trust. Peter should have continued to fear not. Now, it's easy to say, perhaps. It's, It's hard to do, maybe. But really, here's the key to this whole thing. Here's the key. We need to keep our eyes on our great God and Savior. It doesn't really take great faith. It it just takes reminding ourselves continually of our great God. Because surely God will do what He has said, right? We can trust Him. Why would we doubt Him? He's going to do exactly what He said. And surely God is going to help us to do what He commands us to do if we do it depending on Him. If we do it prayerfully and looking to Him. Now, one way to think about how do we apply this, I think it applies to so many situations. But one way to think about this is uh, to think about another command from our Lord. Our Lord says, come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me all who labor are and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And so one way to think about this is one way that we often express doubt is in the assurance of our salvation. 
The Lord has commanded us to come, but we wonder, we doubt, have we come rightly? Have we, have we come or are we going to be okay? Is he going to really give us this rest that he promised? Or if you think about another invitation from the Lord in Acts 17.30, it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so there's this command to come, to repent. All people everywhere are commanded to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. But some of us continue to, to just struggle and, and at times doubts arise in our hearts and we, we wonder about the assurance of our salvation. And what we do in that moment is we look at our remaining sin or we look at our performance in the week or our lack of performance and and we forget about this great Savior who has invited us and commanded us to come. And so what we need to do is we need to come and look to Jesus. Come and and trust Him. Come and repent. Come and take His yoke upon us. Come and, and learn His ways. Come and trust a great Savior who can save you, who is powerful enough to save you. And even if you do begin to falter again, we need to follow Peter's example and cry out immediately, Lord, save me. Save me from from this moment. Save me from this doubt. And and Jesus is right there to grab us. He He is literally right there. He's literally everywhere because He's omnipresent according to His deity. And so remember this great Savior. Remember that just like He grabbed Peter in that moment, if, if we come to Him and call to Him, He will grab us. And so we look to Christ for salvation. We trust Him for salvation. And also we need to trust Him for sanctification. We need to really, we need to trust Him for anything and everything in our life. Everything needs to be handed over to the Lord. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A promise from the Lord there. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And then verse 7, so important, Casting all of your anxieties on Him, Because He cares for you. Jesus cares. Jesus cares about His people. He even serves His people. He prays for us even now in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ prays for His people. And He is powerful. He is all-powerful. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And He invites us to trust Him. Even as He invited Peter to come on the water, so He invites us to come and and live our lives with Him and serve Him. And so He invites us to come and He promises in the Great Commission that He will be with us always until the end of the age. And so if we are disciples of His, He promises to be with us and to grab us and to help us and to use us by His mighty power for His purposes and His glory. And that leads us then to number four. We see here the, the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 32 and 33. The worthiness of Jesus. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind 
ceased. And again, I think the text reads as though Peter got back on top of the water, but Matthew doesn't say for sure. And they both got into the boat and, and Jesus, or Jesus probably would have been somewhat dry. Peter would have been soaking wet, at least up to the, the point that he sank to. Depends how fast the Lord is at, at grabbing him, you know. He might, immediately grabbed him. He might have not got much more than ankle deep. We don't, we don't know again. But right away as they, as they step into the boat, the wind stopped. And that seems miraculous as well. And we see then the reaction in verse 33. The, the 11 besides, you know, Peter and, and possibly even a few others on the boat, they were all eyewitnesses to, to this whole thing. And so the, the 12 of them were there and, and maybe more and, and they saw the whole thing. They saw Jesus. They saw Peter. They saw the walking on the water. They saw the sinking. They saw the saving. They saw the wind cease. And now Jesus and Peter are, are sitting there on the boat with them and, and, and they begin to process this whole thing. They get, begin to think about this whole thing. Last time in the storm they had said this, this is Matthew 8.27, the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This time they understand even more, verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. And so they worshipped him. They, they bowed down before him. The, the word means to bow down, but often it's, it's used for worship and, and that is clearly the intent here. They worshipped, and here's how they worshipped, they worshipped by saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is the confession of their worship, that you are Son of God. And they confessed Him as the Son of God. Now this is the first time that the disciples make this confession. This is the first time that they, they're beginning to recognize. Now we don't know exactly how much they understand at this point. It would seem from, from later on in the Gospel that they're, they're just starting to, to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is. But we, as the readers of the book of Matthew, we're, we're way ahead of the disciples at this point because we've seen this confession multiple times already. This is the first time the disciples make this confession, but, but we heard it already from God in Matthew 3 and verse 17. At the baptism of Jesus, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this from the devil. In Matthew, or in chapter four, Matthew four and verse three says, the tempter came and said to Jesus, said to him, if you are the son of God, and the, the construction there again was, and you are, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Or again in verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and, and we'll stop there. And then again, we, we need to just see here also in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, now that's the same word, worship me, as we see in our text. 
And Jesus said to him in that moment, not, not son of God language here, but again, Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so we know that Matthew knows this verse from Deuteronomy 6.13. Matthew knows that only the Lord your God is worthy of worship. Only Yahweh your God is worthy of service. And so he knows that only God is worthy of worship. Not even the highest angels should be worshipped, but Matthew tells us in our text without any explanation that they worshipped Jesus. And what that tells us is that Jesus is worthy of worship. And we've seen this already in the book of Matthew as well. Remember at his birth, the the Magi came and they said, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Matthew 2.2. And again in Matthew 2.11, again, same word here. They, They bow down to worship. And again, Matthew 2.11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And we're going to see this same language again at the end of the gospel in Matthew 28 and verse 9. Behold, Jesus met them. This was after the resurrection. And he said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then again in verse 17 of Matthew 28, and when they saw him, they worshipped him but some doubted. And then the Lord tells them that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he tells them to make disciples of all nations. And so Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is God's son and that he is worthy as the son. He is worthy of worship. Now we've seen his worth today in a a remarkable service that he did for the crowd and for his disciples. We've seen how he was worthy in his, in his prayer. He's worthy of, of being followed. He's worthy of our, he's worthy as an example to us. We've seen his worth through his mighty power when he walked on the water. We've seen his great worth in enabling Peter to walk on the water as well. And so this Lord is worthy of our trust. And we've seen that he is worth our worship as well. He is worthy of worship. We've seen these four wonderful demonstrations of the glory and the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're going to worship Him again. We're going to worship Him by singing. We're going to sing, Behold our God. But let's pray first. Father, we, we come before You and we thank You for this text. We thank You for the example that we have in our Lord of serving others, of praying. We thank You for the power that he has that he is, that was shown to us. We thank you that he, you invite us through him to, to come, that you invite us to come to you and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to not doubt, that you would help us to be those of great faith, not that our faith is so great, but that we would just look at a great and awesome and powerful God that you are. And we pray now that you would help us to worship you and worship your son, Jesus Christ, for all of who he is in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.